You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. and welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I'm super excited to have with me today uh, Dr. James Simmons. Dr. Simmons is a board-certified acute care nurse practitioner, frontline healthcare provider, and passionate on-air medical contributor. Dr. Simmons continues to emerge as one of the most sought-after voices at the intersection of the LGBTQ+, and Black communities. He is also the brains and heart behind a vibrant online community ask the NP everything you're too scared to ask your MD. As seen and heard on KTLA, NBC, Fox, CBS, ABC, Yahoo, Channel Q, SiriusXM, Loveline, Dash Radio, and many more, his combination of extensive multimedia experience and nearly 12 years of hospital-based critical care practice makes Dr. James Simmons a go-to trusted source for real, relatable, and reliable health information. Dr. Simmons holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Journalism and Mass Communication from Drake University, a Master's of Science in Nursing from University of Illinois, Chicago, and a Doctorate of Nursing Practice from the University of California, Los Angeles, where he is also a frequent guest lecturer and research consultant. Dr. Simmons currently serves as Advisory Board Vice Chair for APAIT and a nonprofit in Southern California whose mission is to positively impact the quality of life for vulnerable communities living with and at risk for HIV AIDS and on the advisory board of Black Queer Town Hall, a nonprofit organization led by Peppermint and Bob the Drag Queen, uh, committed to celebrating Black queer excellence by supporting and cultivating community, sharing knowledge, and uplifting voices. Dr. Simmons is honored to be a founding and continuing clinical ambassador for the CDC's Let's Stop HIV Together campaign. Welcome to the show, Dr. Simmons. Why, thank you, Dr. Taya. One of the, <laughs> my favorite things about all of that madness that you just read is that I get to have like CDC ambassador and lecturer at UCLA and that I work with Bob the Drag Queen all I, in the same like. I, I When I first read that, I was like, I love that. That's fantastic. It's the Peppermint and Bob the Drag Queen like was 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 it for me. So thank you. It, that's it, right. If people that's don't it. like and anything else I've ever done, it's that I, I work with Bob the Drag, you know. That's it. I think that's it. That's the end of the interview. That's it. <laughs> That's and awesome. Bob is, Bob is an amazing human being. Um, so I'll start with the from the from same question I always ask my my guests. My very first question is, how did you decide you were going to go into the profession of nursing? Ooh, this one, um, uh, similar to other people and uh, I guess other guests that you've had. You know, my mom was a pediatric ICU nurse for years. She was a pediatric ICU LV. 
this was like back in the days when they had like LVNs and LPNs in the EDS ICU and the NICU and all that. So my mom did that work and I always thought my mom was super badass. Um, and so I was very, from very early on, it was like nursing is great. Like I love this and my mom loves her job. She subsequently transitioned into the ministry and she actually retired as a United Methodist minister. Like she became a minister. Yeah. But I always was like, nursing is really badass. Except I grew up, you know, black, biracial, queer. I'm not the most masculine person on earth in Nebraska in the 80s and 90s. So I already was getting like picked on all the time. So the last thing I wanted to do was like, you know, spread more fodder on the fire, like more fuel for the fire and tell everybody, hey, I also want to be a nurse, right? Like, because at the time, you know, it's not a very macho thing to be a nurse, at least in the 80s and 90s in Nebraska. So I, even though I knew I wanted to be a nurse, I hit it for a long time. I didn't do anything about it. Turns out I'm also fairly okay, I guess, at writing. So I turned writing and journalism into a thing. And that's what I got my uh, undergraduate degree in. And I actually started off in radio and TV and doing like, you know, after that sort of PR and marketing, I had a great career. They were fast tracking me to leadership at PepsiCo. Um, and I was working on like the Gatorade brand and I got to work with some of the athletes and it was great. I had this whole like PR marketing dream corporate career. I think about age 30, 31, something like that. No, whatever, math, somewhere in there, <laughs> 29. I, I had been slowly taking prerequisites throughout my 20s, knowing that just in case I was wanted to make this jump, that I would be prepared to do it. So I literally did the like at night school, Chicago community college, like organic chemistry. And then the next semester I'd take something else. The next semester I'd take something else. So I built up all the prerequisites decided to quit corporate life and go back to school to become a nurse and then subsequently a nurse practitioner, which I did at the illustrious, amazing, no one better University of Illinois, Chicago, under the tutelage of Dr. Susan Corbridge, who I hope is listening, um, who is still very much a mentor uh, and very has always been a significant person in my life. Since I met her, she's great. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how I, I got there. I was like, you know what? I, I'm going to let go of the, the stigma of being a man and nursing. By that point in time, I was like very out and proud. So I was like, well, I actually don't really care what people think of me. I'm going to do this thing that I want to do. And I know that I can continue to like build a life and a career that I want and maybe even work a little bit of the journalism and media into it. And I was like, screw it, I'm gonna go back and become a nurse. And it is like the best decision I've ever made. That's awesome. Um, now, now was it, uh, how was the actual like experience of being in nursing school uh, for you? Uh, because you are, you are black, you are in the LGBTQ community. Uh, you, you know, you do, you're doing great work with the advocacy work that you're doing now. How was that being, how was that experience for you being in the nursing profession during school? Um, I think I'm really lucky, um, Dr. Tayeb, and that I went to UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, UIC, that, uh, UIC is a pretty progressive campus, just in and of itself, being where it's located in Chicago, it's leadership, it's sort of missions and values as an organization, like as a school. Um, it's a pretty diverse school to begin with. 
Um, the, the School of Nursing, at least at the time, less diverse, but they were trying really hard, trying to do all of the right things. And so um, I definitely listen. I stick out everywhere I go. <laughs> I'm different. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where I go. I am always different. And that's, while it's, it's hard and has its challenges, it's sort of, I don't know anything different, right? In my 44 years of my life, like I don't know anything different. So it didn't feel categorically different being in school. Um, I, I will say that the far and away, the vast majority of people I went to school with were white um, and heterosexual, I guess, not queer identified, although there were a few of us uh, queerdos running around. Um, so that was really nice and the school was really supportive of that, um, you know, maybe begrudgingly, but I'm running around, you know, saying the things I say and doing the things I do and causing a commotion, but I had some compatriots in school causing the commotion with me as well. It was super fun and UIC um, supported that as much as they could as an organization. So I think I had a unique experience in that, A, I went into it later in life. So, you know, I wasn't an 18 year old going to nursing school, also trying to figure out who I am. I was 30 years old going to nursing school. And, um, you know, I, I also did the, a, this, the, we have different names for them, but these career changer programs, right? I did one of those programs where, you know, you have a degree in something else and then they, you know, you get your RN, you take the NCLEX and then you go on to work on your nurse practitioner, the like combo entry program. So, you know, we were all older students. We all already had degrees and, uh, and life experience and other things. So I think that that really influenced um, how school was for me. I think the other thing too, is that you can often determine how people treat you and how people approach you by your own approach. So um, I, I am not confident every day. And I think anyone who tells you that they're super confident every day is lying to you. But most of the time at that point, I'm feeling really confident about myself and who I am and being like, yep, I'm black and queer and proud and we can be friends even if you're not. And we can, you know, you can feel any sort of way about it and that's fine, that's on you. I'm gonna feel the way I feel. I'm here to learn. I'm here to become the best nurse and the nurse practitioner that I can be um, and not, in spite of these things, but because of these things. Um, and so I think because I brought that approach, because I had some lived experience, um, I brought that approach, everybody else sort of brought that approach too, and then saw our uniqueness and my uniqueness being who I am as much more of a gift and a, and a blessing and a, a good thing to the school and to our little, uh, our little group who um, I do have to say, if I, some of them may be listening, but there's, you know, in the in the halls of University of Illinois Chicago, right? There's all the pictures of the graduating classes, right? And and every and at all nursing schools, and we are the only one. We're all wearing wigs. <laughs> <laughs> in our class picture, we absolutely refuse to do the traditional like whatever thing. We're just like we're all going to wear wigs, so we're wearing some sort of wigs and costumes or whatever in our uh, picture. And I think it is quite telling of the rabble rousers that my, my group was for sure. That, that's funny. Um, the reason I bring, bring it up because we do struggle in diversity uh, in the profession. Uh, I don't think we are where we, we should be, but also from a faculty perspective, I don't think we are diverse enough and we don't have enough representation. Um, so 
how was it from a faculty perspective? Uh, because now you are, we'll get into how you got into your DMP work, but now that you are doing some lecturing, guest lecturing and doing some mm -hmm. talks at the university, um, but also what, what difference do you think that representation makes to that 18 year old that doesn't have the life experience, right? And may not be as confident as you are because you went into it a little bit later in life as I did. I was in my late twenties and actually early thirties by the time I got into nursing school, I kind of knew where, where I was going. I was disciplined enough and had enough confidence in myself, uh, regardless of who was represented or not represented, but from what kind of difference do you think a diverse faculty makes for the student and their success? All, all the difference. It makes all of the difference. You can't, people have heard this a lot before and, and maybe it's a little bit cliche, but you can't be what you can't see. Um, and I think that that's one of the, just cutting to the chase. We, there's this perception around nursing that it is this middle-aged to slightly older white women's profession. And there's a reason behind that because that's who's traditionally we see as nurses, right? <laughs> and that's who sort of traditionally has been nurses, at least here in the United States and particularly in the Midwest where I grew up, right? And so that's changing. It's certainly very different here in Southern California. Um, but it's still primarily represented as a, you know, cisgender female profession only. Um, and, you know, we know it's very well documented and you've talked about this before about our, our, our nursing, um, uh, we're, we're aging, we're retiring. There are not enough nurses coming in. There's not enough ways to educate the nurses in the right way to replace all this. Like we have all of these problems. And I think some of those problems have stemmed from the images that we see in our classrooms to your mm. point but also on tv in the media whatever are white women often middle-aged being cro crotchety cranky nurses right and then that, that's what people uh, perceive the job being not the yeah. things that i'm doing not the things that you're doing like people sometimes don't even imagine that those can be things that nurses do particularly if you are a queer person or a, a person of color uh, or, or black, like you just, you're not seeing nurses that look like you or have your shared experience, period, let alone nurses who are doing things other than being at the bedside, which we all know is great. I will not knock that, but we're going to talk a lot about nursing that happens that is not at the bedside that is right. as important, I feel very strongly about. So yeah, yeah I mean, just like any industry, uh, Dr. Tayeb, we, we have got to fix this problem. We have got to fix how particularly in higher education, the people who are teaching nurses need to be much more representative of the uh, of the body of a patients that we take care of, right? In our lifetimes, the majority of people in the United States will not be white. We're getting pretty close to that already. Right. That needs, that needs to be represented in our nursing workforce and not just in places like New York or Chicago or Southern California. Like it, it needs to be represented everywhere and languages need to be represented um, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably beating a dead horse because a lot of people have, have, have brought these things up before. How we fix that is a much longer, much more complicated uh, discussion that might not fit into your tidy one hour podcast. Um, <laughs> but I do think it is us having conversations like this and having as a profession being really upfront and transparent about the fact that 
for better or worse, it, we don't have to place a judgment on, on it. I think a lot of us rush to these things. You can say something and make an observation without placing a judgment on it. Yeah. So I'm probably going to get a lot of heat from even saying this now, but the, the observation is the perspective of nursing, at least outside of maybe the top five major metropolitan areas in the United States, is that it is a white women's profession. Yep. And that's an observation and we can all work from there without judgment. This is not judging middle-aged white women. Like I'm not, that's not <laughs> what I'm doing, but that's, you, you are, it, we know the research is very clear that if you were receiving care from nurses and our practitioners, physicians, whomever, from people who have your shared experience, you receive better care. We tout that as nursing all the time. Well, we also need to turn that a little bit inward, I think as a profession and be like, we are going to raise the next generations of nurses in the best way possible by having nurses who have those shared experiences being the ones teaching the next generations of nurses, right? right. Um, and if we don't fix that, we're this nursing dearth of nurses that are <laughs> we're gonna have in the future or not even in the future kind of now. And all of the issues that are happening in our healthcare system that I know we as nurses are very well equipped to fix. Um, that's not going to happen if we don't fix some of those issues in terms of diversity uh, quickly. Well, it has to be purposeful. Um, I, I was at a, at a conference uh, just this past week and actually a very prominent nurse leader in academia had the stage and uh, what she said was disturbing, uh, not just for me, but many people that were there that I talked to afterwards. And she kind of blew off the the whole idea of diversity really making an impact on nursing and was really looking at mm -hmm. the numbers because we have a, we're going to have a shortage. We already have a shortage in some areas, but we're going to have a shortage as the years go on and we have more nurses retire. And she was more worried about making sure that we have enough nurses and didn't and pretty much said diversity is not going to make an impact. Uh, she may mm. have meant like from a numbers perspective, but the way it came off, like it wasn't on her agenda. Uh, and considering that she's, you know, uh, in a leadership role at a well-known university, uh, it was disturbing for not only me, but like I said, a lot of people that were at the conference. And, uh, um, and I'm hoping that the fact that we're going to, that we're going to be in a nursing shortage at some point, or we are in certain areas, that the diversity thing doesn't get thrown out just to get enough numbers in, right? We have to be able to sure. like chew gum and walk at the same time, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so, so yeah, so that, anyway, moving well, on. It's really, <laughs> yeah, really but... well, it's really unfortunate that, that, that that's the case. And I, I think that, I think so many people think that Dr. Time, so many people think that because you care passionately about one thing means you don't have the capacity to also care about something else. And that is right. categorically not true. And, you know, I, Listen, at the end of the day, we are in a business. This is the business of healthcare. And we are altruistic nature as nurses. We don't like talking about that, right? We don't okay. like talking about the fact that this is a business and everywhere we work has at some point in time, their their focus, someone's focus is the, is the bottom line. And unfortunately, I think that is a bit, and this is a totally different conversation, but it's part of the reason why nurses are treated the way that we're treated. And it's part of the way the reasons that you know, in California right now, we're really struggling with full practice authority. You know, it's probably coming in 2023, but there's this last minute 
you know, it's technically law, but there's these last minute pushes by the CMA and others right. to try to stifle this. Um, and all of that is bottom line. All of that is capitalism. All of that is money driven things. And if it is disappointing to me that you have someone who's even in academia and not necessarily like, you know, uh, healthcare service delivery leadership, but if you have someone in academia who can't even from a bottom line standpoint, see how increasing diversity in nursing can impact the bottom line and impact just the volume of people we have coming into the profession, right. that's pretty short-sighted. And um, I would argue that if that person is not white, they probably are still buying into systems of uh, whiteness and, and uh, sort of anti-blackness, anti-brownness, all of these systems that have built our current healthcare system the way it is and why diversity is still something that we have to actually like talk about and make initiatives about. Um, there are reasons for that. And we until we break those systems and really talk about them yeah. and have leaders like that be able to acknowledge their own faults and, uh, and say, are, you know, I'm kind of getting this one wrong. I need to get it differently. Um, it's not gonna change. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. You know, I think that that's why it's important that we we really do shift uh, from like 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 you know yeah a lot of people call them like the um, you know uh, this the old guard that uh, that has been raised in the system and the system is all they know but but aren't able to see past uh, their own experiences over the uh, however many years and I appreciate their experience but if you can't change with the movement if you can't change with the times i think you need to step aside regardless of how what how much of a wealth of a knowledge you have if you're incapable of seeing where the profession needs to go and what where the profession is asking to go and where the communities are asking for the profession to go i think we need to you need to be open to stepping aside and letting somebody else taking take the reins uh, of leadership um yeah so. and, if, and even just understanding where you're you're, we are multifaceted human beings, particularly when we get into positions of leadership. And so there are other things that you can offer the profession. So maybe it's step, it's literally stepping aside or right. stepping to a different position. It doesn't mean that we want you to disappear. Right. It doesn't mean we want that wealth of knowledge to disappear. Right. But it is sort of, but that a change, we as a species, that's are like biologically inherently predisposed to hate change, right? We don't like it. We <laughs> right. literally have terms for it in nursing and medicine, hemiostasis, right? Our body is constantly trying to go back to this balance to this that we're comfortable with, to this norm, right? So we yeah. fight change and it takes a measure of being humble yeah. and self-effacing and being able to put the profession, patient, healthcare, the future, everything else in front of yourself and say, actually, let's, you know, this isn't about me. Yeah. And maybe it is time for me to like, you know, go back and teach pathophys or start a podcast or like whatever. It, right. Contribute to the profession in other ways other than being a short-sighted leader. Yeah, I, I agree. I 100% agree. Uh, I want to talk about how you decide you're going to, um, you know, do a do a left turn now. Uh, how you decided to get into say you're you're going to get a DMP and your role because you you're also a, a hospitalist, uh, which is which is a normal we we don't normally see uh, uh, in many healthcare systems. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about that process. Yeah, well, there's uh, I mean there's a couple of things there. So uh, in a lot of places we it's growing very fast. Yeah, nurse, acute care nurse practitioners as hospitalists 
Um, and I love it. I think it's great. I think we are, that's a, sort of exactly what we're educated for. You know, a lot of times it's, oh, acute care nurse practitioners, and then you go into a specialty or, you know, um, you're just in the ICU, which is great. Um, but I was telling someone the other day, I've been a hospitalist for so long now, like I take care of some ICU critical care patients, but I also like love the fact that I have intensivists, NPs and physicians that I get to work with because they're, I mean, ICU, is ch it changes so fast, right? Like what we do in critical, critical care. Um, that ho being a hospitalist is its own kind of specialty, if you will. Yep. And I love it. I think it's great. It scratches that itch for me to be at the bedside, to use my critical thinking brain, to, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, I'm that idiot who puts like links to research in my notes. <laughs> I'll be like, you know, like lately I'm on this campaign for, uh, we're sort of learning a lot and this is a little bit controversial. So you'll probably get some feedback on this one, Dr. Taya. So we still have these sort of like old COVID protocols in place for steroids. And now that we're coming into COVID and flu season, I'm like, I'm really analyze this. So I'm literally putting in every single note and I'm sending little emails and little whatever about, hey, did you guys see this New England Journal of Medicine research about steroids and COVID? Like all these different things, right? I love that part of my job. I love having conversations with patients. I love like, you know, new DKA diagnoses and I get to sit down and I carve out like 45 minutes and I'm like, let's talk about diabetes and insulin and medications because you're going to hear it from me in a totally different way. You're going to hear it from somebody else. Like that's my jam in the acute care setting. But I also love public health. And I was really torn when I went to my master's program, whether I was going to go the public health route or the acute care route. And what I figured out is I get to, if, if I'm creative about it, I get to have the best of both worlds. So I get to practice as a hospitalist and we do seven days on seven days off. So I literally get my like acute care fixed <laughs> on my seven days on and taking care of patients in the hospital. And then on my seven days off, I get to do all my other stuff, which includes a lot of, of public health. And that's what was really, really drew me to pursuing doctoral level work. Um, and it was a long process to think about whether I wanted a PhD or a DNP. I'm sure I can see it in your eyes. You have that question. I will answer it for you uh, shortly. But it was a long process as to whether or not I wanted a DNP versus a PhD. Um, I ultimately chose the DNP and I did it in sort of a public health way because I also love that. And I, it goes back to, I have lots of dualities in me, right? I am, I am. The majority of my genetic makeup is black, but my mother is white. Like I, I am, so I'm biracial, right? I'm technically not, I'm sort of pan, I guess the kids would call me pansexual these days. I'm partnered to a cisgender man, but I've dated like cisgender women in the past. Like I have these like dualities about me. And I also have that in my practice as a nurse practitioner that I, and I think this, if there's a message that people take from this part of the podcast is that you can do those things. Um, you can really try to influence public health and my passions in particular in public health um, are around like HIV prevention um, while also like being an acute care nurse practitioner. You can, you can do both and there's absolutely space to do both, particularly when it comes to your doctoral work. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Did, um, I, did I set, set you up for the question while there? Well, well, I want, I want to, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I mean, I, I understand. And just because I already know you, uh, uh, like a lot of these questions, like I know why, uh, but, but, but I want to constant, I want to talk a little bit about, um, and I appreciate that you go into DMP route because you really have that passion for the acute care setting, 
right? Uh, and being in the community where the PhD work is more, you know, uh, perhaps in the academic and research and and I think you like that that uh, also and and I'm and I'm and I'm as I'm as I'm uh, tapping my fingers together thinking you may go back for your PhD at one point uh, oh, no. because I think that might be an itch in the back of your uh, back of your head that you uh -huh. need to scratch have, at some I have point. Lots of itches. Right? <laughs> But I want to talk about, because you mentioned the public health, and I know you have a huge social media and not just media presence, right? Um, I want to talk about how you decided that you're going to bring that component since you had a background for it. Um, how did you decide you're going to bring that component? Because you do a lot of public health uh, type of education on your platforms. Um, how does that come into play and what was like, how did you get started in that? Because I know there's, there's nurses out there who uh, try to become in to try to be who try to be influencers, but a lot of times they just, uh, you know, I hate to say this, they just end up doing a song and dance and not really educating. Uh, but mm -hmm. you really have your you're very consistent on your social media platform and in your other media presence that you have, uh, you you are you really stick to uh, educating the public on like what's going on right now or how to prevent things. And there's a whole slew of things that you concentrate on. How did you decide that was going to be a platform for you in addition to your day job? Um, excellent question. I love, I love both of them. So I, I often, I think growing from the place of the, uh, being constantly being othered, right. Um, I just sort of like, I'm gonna, and again, this is not me every day. I don't want people to walk away being like, oh, this Dr. James has this shit together every single day of his life. I don't, just like everybody else, right? But um, I try to build from from me being other and everywhere I go as a source of strength. And so I, I sort of parlay that into, well, no one's gonna put me, I can't even put myself in a box. No one's gonna put me into a box in terms of my career. So yes, I want to be an acute care nurse practitioner, and yes, I still want to work, uh, you know, in the practice in hospitals at the bedside. But yes, I happen to have a degree in journalism. I happen to be a pretty good writer. I happen to have a boatload of media training, and there are people out there giving horrible medical advice. Mm. It's just trash. And not only is it trash, it's not even what they're saying; it's how they're saying. We. There was a, a new survey that just came out. 51% of Americans are scared to ask their doctor, and they specifically reference physicians, scared to ask their MDs or DOs about a medical problem that they already are diagnosed with or a new symptom that they have. 51% of Americans. Um, that's why I do this. Because then what do people do? They go to WebMD, great or they go to Google, you Google your symptom and you have cancer, right? Full stop. Everyone's like, oh, my eyebrow itches. Oh, it means I have cancer, right? So everyone's freaking out and fear and, and scared. And then they go to YouTube and then they've got some idiot on YouTube who's like, oh, take this herbal supplement, whatever, and it'll cure your eyebrow cancer that you have, right? There's too much of that crap out there. And I almost feel like it's my responsibility as someone who does now a fair amount of privilege that I've really fought for, uh, a, a job that I like that provides me some flexibility and the skills of being a good communicator to communicate better information to people in a way that they will digest, in a way that they will receive, they, they will get. 
So the way I'm talking to you is the way I talk to my patients. It's also the way I talk on, I was supposed to be on MSNBC this morning. I said no to that um, because I thought that, you know, they wanted to talk about RSV and how it's impacting my hospitals. And I was like, well, it isn't, we don't have, we don't take care of pediatrics in my hospital. But like, I can't speak to that. But when I am on cable news networks like that, or, you know, locally on KTLA or on podcasts or whatever, this is what you get. And people really like that. And I saw a need for that. I saw a need for people to be able to have conversations about their health and be able to ask questions and the brand ask the NP and get real answers to it. No crap, including, we don't really know including answers like, this is complicated. I'm gonna try to explain this to you in a 90 second video, but if you want more, DM me or go reference this 10 minute video that I still have posted on YouTube from four years ago. And people have really, I cannot tell you the number of people, Dr. Tayeb, that have responded to a video that I have on YouTube that has, I don't know, like 100,000 views or something, whatever, about, one testicle hanging lower than the other. And I cannot tell you the number of people, right? It seems sort of funny, right? And like, <laughs> we're like, oh, you go on YouTube and you're like, oh, there's this like funny James. And this was before I got my doctorate. So it was like James, the NP. And I literally did a two minute video while drinking coffee right before I went to work and threw it up on YouTube about someone had asked, someone asked the NP why one testicle hung lower than the other. And he thought something was wrong. Like I'm super worried. Do I have cancer? He had looked up torsion. He was convinced himself he had to, you know, torsion. And I was like, well, you don't have any pain. You don't have, but you know, if you think you do, go get checked out. But here's probably why you don't. And I did this, explain this video. That video is probably six years old. I still get emails weekly. People who come across that video and are like, oh my gosh, thank you so much, Dr. James. I thought something was wrong with me. I was really worried because. Who has ever sat anyone down and been like, hey, young man, I'm going to tell you why you're one testicle hung lower than the other. Thanks, dad. I appreciate it. Like, we can barely get dad to have the, like, birds and the bees conversation, right? <laughs> or conversations about, like, masturbation or things like that, let alone talking about, like, why one testicle might hang lower than the other. And it's purely a physiologic thing, right? That's it. But there's that. I always go back to that because I feel like there's so much power in having a medical professional just sit there and tell you be like oh yep guess what one of my testicles hangs lower too so does everyone who has testicles <laughs> and here's why like right it's a thermo regulation physiologic thing it doesn't mean anything's wrong here's some signs you should look out for that might be wrong and if they are don't be afraid just go get checked out we're not judging you i promise i've seen thousands of testicles in my career like i'm not judging yours right People like having medical professionals, regardless of the letters before or after their name, talk to them in a real way like that. And there's, say what you will about the Dr. Oz's of the world. And like, I think Dr. Jen Ashton, she's one of my favorite people. Uh, she's on Good Morning America. I think she does a really great job with that, but she's a middle-aged white lady. And I think that there are so many people who are black and brown and queer and at intersections of all these different things who don't want to get their health advice from a middle-aged white lady. They just don't, right? They don't trust her. They don't trust the system. They're not going to receive it in the same way 
there's nuances in the way that we talk and cultural things and whatever. And so if I need to have a conversation with a queer black cisgender man about his testicles, that person is gonna receive that better from me than they are gonna receive it from someone who does not have their shared experience. And I didn't find anyone else out there who was really serving the needs of the communities that I represent. Yeah. And so all of these things were really a part of, wow, I have some privilege now. I've got a phone just like everybody else and I can upload to YouTube just like everybody else. And I'm gonna start talking about these things. And so I started uploading them to YouTube and to Instagram and Twitter and blah, blah, blah. And here we are. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, I, and like I said, I, I appreciate the conversations that you're, you bring to the table uh, on your platforms. I think they're, they're valuable. And it goes back to that whole diversity thing where, where diversity matters in who's providing the information and how they're providing the information, right? And a part of it has to do with, uh, you know, unfortunately, our physicians are all seem to be uh, indoctrinated in the same way. Uh, and not everybody responds to the way that physicians are indoctrinated and how they um, approach the conversations uh, with their patients, right? Uh, and I think that's that's where your your uh, you bring value. You bring a lot of value uh, to the game. And I think there's a there's a lot to be learned by what you're doing. So thank you, thank you for doing that. Thank you. Now that was very. I didn't pay any, I didn't pay him to say that. Everybody listening. <laughs> Uh, no, thank you. Uh, no, thank you. Um, but I want to. Um, I want to also talk about. Uh, you have this uh, again. Other platform. You're like me. You're. You're. You got your hand in a little bit of everything. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, I want to talk about the work that you're doing with. Uh, uh, with HIV AIDS and the LGBTQ community, because I think that's, again, valuable. And me, uh, when I first got into the healthcare business, uh, actually, I went from high school into the Navy. The first, uh, I was at the Naval Medical Center San Diego, and the first unit I was assigned to uh, was an inpatient unit. It was a medical urology floor, medical and surgical urology floor, but a good 60, 70% of our patients were HIV AIDS patients, uh, where, um, uh, and this is early nineties. Uh, and I did that for like 18 months of my first, when I was in the Navy, those are the patients I dealt with. So I have a special place in my heart for, for the population. Although I know much of the medications that are around now were not around back then. So we dealt with a lot of the, you know, actually AIDS patients more than, you know, just being HIV positive. Um, so tell me how you got into this community and uh, really building a platform to help educate, advocate uh, for, the, for, the, for this population. Uh, I think a lot, like a lot of things, I hope people are also gleaning this from our conversation, Dr. Tayeb, that a lot of these things I did, I didn't set out to be like, I'm gonna have whatever. And, I'm going to have 40,000 followers on Instagram. Like this is my goal. And maybe that is some people's goal. Yeah. That's great. You know, to your previous point about, you know, the, I, I choose to use my social media platforms for health education. I think that's really important. Literally what my DNP work is about. But I, I like, I'm also good friends with Katie Duke. Like, and Katie has taken her social media into a completely different direction. And I think that there's a lot of value in that too. So I, I don't want to, like Nurse Blake, for instance. Nurse Blake is out on a comedy tour right now, right? That guy's <laughs> A, making money hand over fist. Right. B, changing the way that people think about nurses. Yeah. And I really like that. And so I don't, I will never knock 
nurses who want to take sort of their social media and media thing in a different direction. It's just not how I choose to rock my platform. But I also like opened one of Katie Duke's shows, right? Like I can, I can have a little comedy for three minutes on stage. You know, we are diverse people. We, uh, we are multifaceted human beings. And that sort of leads me back to your question about how I got into, you know, HIV prevention work. It wasn't like I had this auspicious goal of being like, I'm going to work with the CDC to prevent HIV. It just, I just sort of fell into it because of, of circumstances in my life. So, you know, early on, I came out uh, real, really young, like 18, and this was in the 90s, right? So I, I burned down the closet door and in Nebraska, I, wow, that was like a big deal, right? So like literally the day I graduated, I was like, all right, I'm gay. And everyone's like, yeah, we know. <laughs> but I, you know, got to Des Moines and I was in Des Moines where I was drinking at my point of school, but I was on the weekends going to Chicago sometimes. And I sort of developed this little kind of queer community in Chicago. And some of the my early days of being gay in Chicago, I had older like mentors, right? And I we lost a couple of those guys. And this is even in the middle to late nineties. Um and you know, early 2000s, we lost a couple of those guys to to HIV and AIDS, and that was really, really impactful. Because even by then, we were like, still living longer with HIV. I mean, it still felt very much like a death sentence then. But being in Nebraska, I had never met anybody with HIV. Until I got to Chicago and, and you know got more involved in the community. I also during so that happened, and then fast forward to nursing school. Uh, in the RN portion of my program, one of the very first patients I took care of on a clinical uh, rotation, um, we'll call him D, uh, had HIV and D was a young black man from the west side of Chicago who did not, uh, his, this is still happening a lot, but a lot of people's first time knowing that they have HIV or what to, is when it's progressed to AIDS and they need to be hospital. And so D was in hospital with AIDS-related complications and oh, six foot one and 80 pounds probably, and had all of, pick a complication, uh, an opportunistic infection and D had it. And D ultimately died um, during our like semester long clinical. And I, I just, I think I would, go in and get to take, you know, the privilege of getting to take care of D and hear his stories about families, his family not coming to see him um, and only having maybe a, a couple, a handful of friends come. And when they came, they had on masks and gowns and like all of these different things. Now, sometimes they needed to have it on because he was often neutropenic, right? Cause he was so sick, but his interpretation was that people didn't want to get close to him or touch him because he had AIDS, right? And so I, I just, I saw myself, right? There's a young black man who didn't identify with the word gay. Um, lots of people of culture don't identify with the word gay, um, but he is a person who had sex with other men and got HIV, didn't know it, got really sick, had to be hospitalized, literally first hospitalization, ended up dying in that hospitalization from AIDS-related complications. And I just, I saw myself in D. I was like, wow, that, 
Like I am also a gay black man. Like that could have been me. And how lucky am I to not be that person and to have the education and the resources that I have to, uh, you know, avoid HIV if possible, or even be protected if I choose to, you know, engage in intimate relations with someone who does have HIV. Like, even then, I wasn't sort of scared to like have sex with people who have HIV. Like, use a condom, right? Uh, we we got to get rid of that stigma and that shame. But I just I saw myself in V, and I saw, and then I just I sort of like looked up and looked all around my community, and I was like, oh my god no one is serving the black community of men who have sex with men. People are writing books about us, about how we only have sex on the down low and then bring HIV home to our female partners and things like that. And all these horrible, awful tropes and all these things that are just categorically false. But there's only small amount of resources being dedicated to this community. And I was like, okay, well, I'm a part of this community and I'm someone who now is able to like take out a you know, mortgage worth of loans from and go to school and get educated and platform and all this stuff. Like I have to keep talking about this. I have to keep talking about HIV prevention in communities that really matter to me. And it just grew, right? It just kept going. And while I was thinking about PhD versus DNP, I sort of always was like, okay, how can I position this around uh, HIV, doing better about HIV prevention in the communities that I represent and that I care about. And there's interestingly a fair amount of, of research out there about what works and what doesn't. A much smaller amount about what works and what doesn't on social media. Um, but then that's why I sort of brought these things together. I was like, okay, I think I want my, my doctoral work to be about social media and HIV prevention in the community of Black men who have sex with men that I represent. Okay, great. Well, who's already doing some of this work? The CDC is already doing some of this work. Aha, okay. I wonder if they want to partner with me. So literally just started sending emails to the CDC and saying, hey, I'm doing my doctoral work at UCLA. These are the things I'm interested in. You kind of already have some tools and resources available. Like I know that they're public domain, but would you want to, do you want to partner in a more like substantive way for this? Um, and they were basically like, yeah, like focus on school, get done with school and then let's talk. And so I partnered with the CDC during some of my doctoral work, um, putting all of my, my project together. Um, and then, I mean, no sooner did I graduated June 13th of 2020, right? From a little graduation ceremony that was zoomed to my computer in my living room, right? We were also on lockdown. So, so, I mean, I graduated on June 13th and I think on June 15th or something, I had an email from the CDC that was like, Hey, <laughs> now we officially partner with you. Like we think your social media platforms would be great to get information out about HIV prevention, particularly PrEP, um, which I'll use my little stage here that PrEP uh, is, is HIV prophylaxis. It's either oral or a shot that when taken as directed is 95 to 99% effective at preventing transmission of HIV through sex. And there are so many people, black, white, purple, brown, queer, gay, straight, I don't care who you are, this trans, they don't know about this, right? I talk about this on podcasts all the time and people are like, wait, there's a pill you can take that will prevent you from getting HIV? Yeah. Yep. And she's been around for about 10 years and not enough people know about it, particularly in communities that really need it. Um, so I can't, you know, say what you will about the CDC and people talk about them and COVID and blah, 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 and they're behind and antiquated in their thinking and whatever, they're trying. They're doing a lot better than they were. 
And I am just happy to have my partnership with them as a platform to be able to get the information out about PrEP in particular, HIV PrEP to communities that really need it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and and this, this brings up another point where how antiquated do you think uh, the health profession is in getting out information to the people that really need to get it? Because I think, I mean, I mean, from a, from a, I mean, from an academic, from an academic perspective, the fact that, uh, you know, some academic, some academia thinks like, you know, like, like the platform of a podcast, right? Like mm -hmm. I reach or we reach, I should say, tens of thousands of people more through our platforms than a published article where a published article has its place absolutely but do you usually sit behind firewalls you got to pay for them you got to get to them and once you read it you don't really at the end of it unless you are uh, doctorally prepared or actually an expert in, an, in a field it's hard to translate to what it means to me as an individual absolutely. but our plot platforms are different it's not again the, the number of people we reach, the impact that the platforms have, and the fact that academia or, you know, just the health systems have not really understood how to best utilize it is boggling mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. That we don't even, from again, from an academic perspective, I started calling my podcast publications because they have a yeah. further reach and I have experts on, right? So I I'm calling them publications. These are publications because I have... They are. So, so how, what do we need to do? Because you've done it, you've worked with the CDC and you've, you've, you've mm -hmm. developed a platform, right? Um, to, for this, what, what do you think the rest of the other 99%, 99.9% of the healthcare systems that haven't <laughs> figured out social media or YouTube or all these yeah. other ways to get information out to the general public? I think that, um, uh, Patient privacy has been the bigger, the biggest factor in in stymieing healthcare organizations, both like hospital systems and then academia, et cetera. So, I think we, everyone's so scared, and rightfully so, right? We absolutely have to guard safeguard right. patient privacy with with our lives, literally. But it's then stopping there and letting that just be the barrier and say, oh, well, we can't use social media, or if we can, it can only really be done by the marketing department. And it's just gonna be these big, big splashy, like a little 30 second marketing about, hey, come get your new, like, uh, whatever. I don't know, like, yeah. or hearing aids, or hearing aids are over the counter. We can get your hearing aids, CVS. Like, okay, boo, I read that story 14 times, but I know I can get hearing aids over the counter. Well, have a real conversation with me about it. And I think that that's where healthcare organizations sort of across the board get stuck on this patient privacy thing. And they, they have then refused to just like figure out, okay, well, there's other channels. There's other ways that we can use media and social media. Few bad apples have probably spoiled the bunch for everyone along the way. So there's a few folks, it happened during COVID, right? There was someone who worked at the hospital where I work. They spoke to the media without the hospital's permission and they said bad things about the hospital. Mm. So then the hospital cracked down on everyone, right? The bad things that the person was saying about the hospital wasn't that hospital specific. It was what was going on in LA County across the board. Right. I don't care if you were at the fanciest hospitals that everybody's heard of or not, 
more or less, this was happening across the board, but the hospital took it as sort of a personal insult. They tried to shut me down. And I was like, listen, I don't speak on behalf of the hospital. You can't say boo about what I say. I don't speak on behalf of the hospital. I don't tell anybody where I work. They can probably figure it out. Yeah. These are my personal platforms, right? You can't, you, you have no jurisdiction over that whatsoever. So I think those gray zones, I think yeah. a few bad apples, I think patient privacy have really stymied organizations, but most importantly, and, and the biggest is just fear, right? It's the people who have these 45 years of experience that are now leading these organizations who don't, they don't under, barely understood Facebook and all they really understand <laughs> it for is sharing, sharing pictures of their grandkids, right? Podcasts were something are something that are like 10 years old. I literally had someone say the other day, wait, podcasts are still a thing? And I was like, what do you mean still? They are the, it is the fastest growing segment of media, period, full stop. You have major motion picture production companies. I'm talking the MGMs of the world, which is that, that's an old term, right? MGM, but like HBO Max and all these folks starting their own podcast division. Right. You have A-listers, A-list people giving up movie roles because it's going to interfere with their podcasting schedule. This is a so much more intimate way to reach people, have a conversation, and to really use the media in a meaningful way. And I think that you, you know, they don't even understand Facebook to go back to my analogy, let alone Instagram, which is old and, and getting outdated, unfortunately. They haven't even tried it. They can barely spell TikTok. And even <laughs> starting to feel like it's already maturing. And there are other social media platforms coming behind it. It is a scary new world. It is fast paced. It is giving other people who don't have the traditional route to power. It is giving them power. And that I think is really deep down what scares a lot of people. So academia, for instance, I have a doctorate degree from UCLA, a master's from UIC and a bachelor's degree from Drake University. Clearly, I believe, at least to some degree, in the power of higher education, but I am the first person to tell you that not all learning and not even the best learning happens in the academic environment. And school is not for everyone. But those are the traditional power structures that we have allowed then people, you have to you have to play this game, you have to go through these particular hoops to get into a position so they can get the type of job that has the power that has any sort of voice over how people make decisions or how they interpret healthcare information or how they receive healthcare information. And all of a sudden what social media did and is doing good and bad, right? Because there's the stuff full of Twitter, <laughs> but what and YouTube and all of them, but what it's done is it's given everyone equal footing. Yeah. And so you have complete asshats like Joe Rogan bringing on other complete asshats talking about completely unfounded, horrible, awful medical medical information. And so you have the biggest podcaster on the planet getting information out to hundreds of millions of people every month. That's dangerous. Yeah. And the reason that some of that has happened, I would argue is that the people who are in these typical structures of power who are scared of social media and scared of podcasting and scared of these things didn't take initiative and didn't take the bull by the horns like the people like Joe Rogan did. And now they're gonna have to play catch up for forever. Yeah. And so yeah. I think it's really unfortunate that that has happened. 
And I, I think that the, the conversation has to change from you guys should learn social media. Hey, maybe we should incorporate social media into our strategy to no, it is a part of our strategy, like full stop. Right. And just as much, you know, in, in corporate land, we'll talk about advertising budget and radio commercials, advertising budget and TV, advertising on billboards. And they have a channel for social media, right? And they're massive departments of people who are employed to talk about social media and influence and all these different things. We absolutely have to do that as we have to do that in academia. We have to include that in whatever so that because this isn't going anywhere, whether we like it or not. Right. There are, you know, TikTok might disappear. But there's otherwise, no social media is going anywhere. And we we have to make it a part of who we are. Yeah, it's it's going to the the platforms may change, but the but the idea of social media is always I think it's going to be around for a really long time. Um, and I think it's it's short sighted when organizations aren't able to tap into it. Um, and, and I agree, like a lot of these platforms, people are like who don't want to be on it. What who, the people that do end up being on it are people that are not always uh, spreading the right information, right? Uh, they're putting out half truths or lies altogether. And it's one of the reasons that actually I stay on some of the social media sites that I that I stay on is because I said, if I'm not there and the people are like me are not there, then the only people that are left are going to be the ones that are just, you know, <laughs> uh, not putting out right. The, the, the right information. So I think it's important for us to be present uh, in those platforms. Um, uh, we're, we're just about time. Uh, I, I do have a question for you. During your process, sure. I mean, uh, doing all of this, um, how much did mentorship or being able to find people to work with uh, mean for you mean uh, to your growth into everything that you're doing? It's everything. It it honestly is everything because it's part of the reason why I try to do as much mentoring as I can while also having my mentors uh, both in and out of the profession. Um, you know, I think that there's we we're all doing our best to we're all sort of faking it till we make it right i think that there is something to be said for you know we all think that everybody else has have everything together right i hope people listening to this right now don't think that i have everything together because well, sometimes when you see me on tv it looks like i do right that's that's just the world that we live in and one of the things the most valuable things that mentorship has brought me is is learning from other individuals who are also very willing to say this is what i've learned these are my experiences this is how i would like to sort of help guide you but also know that this isn't absolute fact and that i also am learning as i go too there's just some comfort in knowing that like wow this person that i really look up to who's leading these organizations and doing all these things is also kind of figuring it out as they go while also still having this great wealth of knowledge and life experience and and whatever so um you know this is i have a great and fantastic uh acute care np student right now i have np students i have medical students i have all kinds of students with me and i have a fantastic nurse practitioner student right now who just was almost in tears the other day because she was like i feel like i'm going back to zero like i feel like i don't know anything and she's been an icu nurse for like 10 years or whatever now she's you know moving on to be an acute care np and she's like i feel like i don't know anything right now welcome to the club like you i was there too and the people that taught me were there and told me that and there's something comforting and like no you're np for almost nine years 
Of course, eight and a half years ago, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I'm the first one to right now to say, hey, let me go ask someone, right? Letters, regardless of letters before and after your name, like, okay, cardiology, electrophysiology. Boy, this, I thought I was good at EKGs, but this EKG was crazy to me. What do you think is going on here? Like, we have to be really open about that, I think, as mentors. That mentorship is not like, I know everything and I'm going to tell you what it is. Um, I think the, some of the most important parts of mentorship that have happened to me, like for me, and I like to pass on to others, is that ability to, to be very comfortable in knowing what you don't know. And I will offer that also as I think that's one of the best ways that we protect our patients is it's not about me. It's not about my pride. I'm a very good hospitalist. And part of the reason I'm a very good hospitalist is because I know that there's a bunch of shit I don't know. So I'm much, very willing to look it up and to ask people. And we're a team, right? It's all about this team taking the best care of our patients that we can. And so if your urologist knows more about XYZ procedure or whatever than I do, and is going to be a better advocate for the patient in that environment or educating that patient, great. I know I'm a great educator, but I'm also not a urologist. So like, hey, but if we can maybe tag this team this together, the patient understands what's going on and we can all move forward. Um, so mentorship has been everything, but I think that he and that mentorship for me has been people really not being these like demagogues and like this like all knowing creature that I'm trying to live up to their expectations, but just being a real human being who's like, yep, I am Dr. Susan Corbridge is a great one. I'm the, uh, now she's the executive associate dean for the School of Nursing, but when she was leading the acute care program and leading pulmonary critical care medicine at UIC, she would be the first person to tell you that I'm very good at my job. There's also a lot I don't know. And I will look it up with my patients if I need to. Um, and so I really appreciate that about her mentorship and, and lots of other people's mentorship and hope that that's something I can bring to the people that I mentor as well. Well, I'm, 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 I'm sure the people that are being mentored by you are very lucky to have you because like I said, uh, greatly appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, any last thoughts before we close up our session? Just thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored. Um, truly, I, your podcast is changing the world, my friend, and <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm hopefully very honored to, to be on here and hope I didn't ramble too much and I hope people are able to get something out of this and just and thank you and thank you to the profession as well this profession is uh drives me absolutely i feel like this profession is like a partner <laughs> like you drive they drive you absolutely crazy and batty but there's no one else on earth you would rather drive crazy right that's how i talk about my partner all the time like i love him so much and he drives me absolutely bonkers but there's no one else on earth i would rather drive me bonkers and that's how i feel about nursing as this profession and so those listening know that you will, it, it is a tough profession. It's really, really hard what we do, um, but it is, offers, I think a wealth of opportunities more than any other profession that I can think of. Um, and I'm very, very proud to be a nurse, um, even in the midst of this mad healthcare world that we live in. And I think that we can change healthcare for a lot of people. Um, and I think that it has to, it begins and ends with nursing. And I'm really proud of that. I appreciate it. Well, the profession is very lucky to have you in it. Um, and I mean that. Um, oh, thank you. So thank you again. Thank you for your time. I know you're, you're a busy guy. So, <clears throat> uh, and, uh, and really appreciate you being here. We have been listening to Dr. James Simmons, 
Uh, he is a board certified acute care nurse practitioner and uh, does a little bit of everything, does media, does uh, uh, everything. Uh, so thank you. Thank you again for being on the show and thank you to all of our listeners and we will see you here back here again soon. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.